Good morning. How is everyone this morning? Good. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here. So if this is your first time, I'd love to be able to meet you after the service. We're really glad that you're here. And we are going to open God's Word together this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. We're going to read that entire chapter in just a few minutes here. So Isaiah 53, if you don't have a Bible, you can use your phone app. That's completely fine. We'll have the verses on the screen behind me. And this morning, I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Version of the Bible, the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. I I was told that sometimes I flip-flop versions and I use ESV, and people are like, man, I'm always confused, like, what Bible you're in. So I'm trying to be better about telling you. This morning, I'm using the the CSB uh, Bible. And so, excited to jump into Isaiah 53 with you and continue the sermon series that we've been in for several weeks now called King Jesus. Uh, This is a series where we are learning from the scriptures that our joy is found when we submit our entire lives to the authority of King Jesus. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this idea called secularism, okay? And the best way to define secularism, right, this this idea, this philosophy that our culture is seeped in is the elevation of self and the shedding off of any sort of external authority that would constrain us or tell us what to do, especially the external authority of of God or or religion or some sort of belief system. And so obviously when we are in a culture that is secular, one of the outcomes of that is what we're going to call individualism. I wanna talk to you about this for just just a couple of minutes. This idea of individualism, it's this mindset where we only trust ourselves as an individual, in the way we think about things more than anyone else. It's this belief in us that if if everyone would see the world and think about the world the way that I think about it, then things would go a whole lot better. So it would be, you know, it's the thought of, you know, if my doctor would just listen to my self-diagnosis, even though I didn't go to med school and study there for eight years, I just spent a morning on Google, then, then things would be better, right? That's why you have people who go to the doctor with the flu and ask for Z-packs. They have no idea what they're talking about. Right? It would be better if politicians would think about foreign policy the way I think about foreign policy, even though I'm not a foreign policy expert and I don't get the intelligence briefings. But if they would see it the way I do and make decisions how I would make decisions, it would be better, Right? It would be better if the, if the preacher up there would interpret the Bible the way I interpret the Bible. Right? Individualism is this belief that although we have not spent the time to become an expert on something, we can consider ourselves to be an expert in it. We see our own thought process as pure and without any bias in other people's thought process as possibly corrupted or misguided. And if you need to have some proof that this is 
kind of rampant in our culture, then you haven't spent much time on uh, social media. But I'll never forget when I was uh, first starting in ministry, I was really young. I, I got my first job in ministry right out of college. And I was a young college minister. And I had an undergrad degree in uh, biblical studies, uh, but I had not yet gone to seminary. And anyway, I was talking to this uh, older pastor at the church that I was uh, pastoring at, and uh, we were talking about this particular passage in the book of Romans. And this guy directed me to go read uh, some uh, pages out of a commentary on the book of Romans uh, written by this guy named Douglas Moo, M-O-O, Moo. Now, Doug Moo is a world-class Bible scholar. He's been teaching New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago for decades. He has written some amazing commentaries on Scripture. So anyway, I went and read this, and I went back to this pastor, and he asked me about what I read and what I thought about it, and I started to answer him by saying, this is what I first said, you know, here is where Doug Moo is wrong. And he just stops me right there. He says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you, before you tell me where he's wrong, um, he goes, please, uh, tell me, Alan. Uh, tell me what you, a 22-year-old in all of your wisdom and experience and scholarly study of the Bible, please tell me how Doug Moo, a world-class Bible scholar who has translated the New Testament from its original language, has been teaching longer than you have been alive, has written books and books and books on this passage right here. Please tell me how you are right, and he is clearly wrong. And this just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, I was dripping with 22-year-old arrogance. And this is individualism, right? It's this belief in me that only I can be trusted and my perspective and the way I see things is, is clearly best, even if I'm young and inexperienced. And this is secular thinking, okay? Because secularism says to elevate self, shed off any external authority that might tell me how to live or how to think, Secularism says if you want to be successful, you must make your mark in the world and show how you are a product of your own making and you have not had any help from anyone else. Individualism. And here's the thing about this, secularism and individualism. It creates a culture where it's really difficult for people to admit when they're wrong and it's even more difficult to ask for help because we take pride in having all of the answers and being able to figure things out on our own. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency are our highest ideals. And this is why in a secular society, we might grasp in the church, the logic of the gospel in our heads, but it is so difficult for us to live out in our hearts because the Bible requires us to recognize that there is something fundamentally wrong with us and we are helpless. Like we need help. There's nothing we can do to change it. 
And this is what we've been trying uh, to uh, understand through this sermon series over the first several weeks. If you remember, we have been building a theology, all right, putting together these simple statements about what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves so we can understand and and build this foundation to understand what it means to to live our lives for King Jesus. That's what we've been doing, building this foundation. Okay, and so I wanna run through these uh, theological statements with you again so we can just continue to get this in our head, all right? So again, if you've missed some of these sermons, I encourage you to go online or our podcast and listen to them to get all of the context But here is where we've been so far. All right, here's our first theological statement. I want you to say this out loud with me. Ready? Here's the first one. Come up on the screen. Ready? In love, God created me to not be the center of my story. God created each and every one of us as unique, dignified individuals with the purpose of using our individuality to bring glory to God, to to live for him, right? So picture this for a second, billions and billions of people who are all different, but all see their purpose as to point to and live their lives for God. We are image bearers of God, not image bearers of self. But remember, the the essence of sin is that we have rejected this purpose and have centered our lives on ourselves and not God. And, And that leads to our second statement. So let's read this together out loud. In sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. This is sin. Ego, being seen as independent, Uh, seeking after the praise of others, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, putting myself before God and others. This has become our life's purpose. So think about this, billions and billions of people saying no to God and battling each other for the glory that God deserves. And that's broken our world. It's broken our world. And this is what the Bible says is sin. And so our third statement is this, There is no joy when I am the center of my story. The Bible literally says we thought we were being wise when we rejected God and our purpose to glorify him with our lives, but we are actually being fools because there is no joy in living for ourselves. It only brings brokenness into our lives. But last week we saw that God is not just asking us to be the center of our lives. Actually, God demands it with the authority of the creator of the universe. And so our fourth statement from last week is this, say it out loud with me. God will be the center of my story, whether I like it or not. Because God is holy, he's all powerful, and he will not tolerate anyone stealing his glory, much less making a mess of his creation. And so God will be the center of our story. And we saw last week, either through salvation or through judgment. But there's one problem. The fall of mankind, our sin against God, here is a big problem. This, on our part, is an irreversible act. 
If you remember when we studied Genesis chapter three together a few weeks back, we saw that God told Adam and Eve that if they sinned against him, they would die. And God wasn't just talking about a physical death. He was also talking about a spiritual death. The second that Adam and Eve sinned against God, they spiritually died. And every human born after Adam and Eve would be born in sin against God and also spiritually dead. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. And so when we talk about spiritual death, what we mean is the inability to be in right relationship with God. We are born enemies of God and deserving of his judgment. And just like a dead man cannot reverse his condition or make himself alive, we are unable to make ourselves right with God. And there is nothing better that helps us to understand this idea of spiritual death. There's nothing better that will help us to wrap our minds around it than the law. God gave his people this law and he demanded them to abide by it. And he gave them all of these worship and, and practices and rituals that they need to religiously keep. And he gave them a moral law that they had to live by. And he gave them a sacrificial system where you would sacrifice animals and grain and other things in order to atone for your sin when you didn't keep the law. It was this incredibly intricate, overwhelming, impossible to follow law. And like we saw last week, God is not flippant about the law and his holiness. He's not lenient with his law. If we want to be right with God, we have to be perfect as he is perfect. But perfection for fallen humanity is impossible. Look at Psalm 14, verses two to three. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one, there's one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. God has demanded perfect righteousness of us, but we are spiritually dead, unable to do it. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I mean, this is like God telling me that if I want to get into heaven, I need to score a perfect score on the final exam of a quantum physics class. I wouldn't even understand the first question, much less pass a first, get a perfect score. This is how far apart God and mankind is. And the law, you have to understand this, was never designed to be the thing that would bring us close to God. 
It was designed to show us the depth of the problem. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter three, verse 20. He says this, for by works of the law, I have the wrong version in my notes, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. The law will not bring you close to God because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. This is the purpose of the law. It gives us knowledge of our sin so that no one is able to stand up and say, see, look at me, I am perfect, I am righteous, I am welcome in the presence of God. The law shows us that we deserve his wrath. The law shows us that we are alienated from God, cut off. And this truth about our sin before God is the most difficult thing for a secular society, an individualistic society to accept. It's the most offensive truth in our Bible to our culture. Because the law of God forces us to look into the mirror and admit not good enough. I don't have what it takes to be right with God. I'm not special. I am just as much of a sinner as the next guy and that there is nothing I can do trying to exert my will and, and, and do as many good deeds as I can every single day of my life will not awaken me from spiritual death. Rejecting God in the Bible and running away and living a wild life, that's not gonna awaken me from spiritual death. Claiming authority over this book and, and looking through it and going, okay, well, I agree with this part, so I'll accept that, but I don't, oh, I don't like that one, so we'll take that out. Doing that is not gonna awaken you from spiritual death. When we look at the law, and we look at our sin, and we look at the holiness of God, there is only one appropriate response. Help! I'm lost. I literally cannot move. I'm stuck in a hole, and I can't get out of it. I, I, I can't. Help me. That's the only response. I have no idea what to do. I have no strength on my own. I can't figure this out. I am lost. I am stuck. I'm too weak. I've sinned against you and I can't stop sinning. Help. The two things a secular society is allergic to, admitting fault and asking for help. And that's our next theological statement. That's today's statement. It's this, say this with me. I am lost, I need help. We are spiritually dead and have no ability to be right with God outside of intervention. And God tells his people in the Old Testament that that actually is his ultimate plan, intervention. That God would send someone to save us, that God would intervene and make a way that he would do something, not us. And that savior would be Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah, 
announced to God's people in great detail exactly how that Savior, Jesus, would intervene and breathe life into our spiritually dead bodies. And I want us to read that announcement in Isaiah 53 together. And as we read this chapter, we are going to see Isaiah prophesy. Look at this, 700 years before Jesus walked this planet, exactly how he would intervene. He's gonna give us five distinct ways that he will intervene on our behalf and save us. Isaiah writes this 700 years before it happened. We're gonna read all of chapter three together. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this savior, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servants will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. 
The first way that we see the Savior intervene on our behalf here in Isaiah 53 is through pursuit. The Savior pursues us. What does that mean? What does it mean for someone to pursue another person? Okay, now I'm a guy, so when I think about that, I think about you know, pursuing my wife. Or when I was pursuing her when we were dating, even now as her husband, as I pursue her, right? Pursuing my wife means initiating relationship. Serving and loving the person without being prompted. For one person to pursue another person, it has to be self-motivated. All right, so, so guys, pro tip for you. Your wife does not want to have to remind you to take her out on a date, right? She wants to be pursued. So it's your idea and you come up with it and do it, right? Your wife does not want to have to remind you to show her affection, right? She wants to be pursued. It's your idea. You do it without being prompted. That's pursuit, which means you're taking the first step towards them and you are seeking to woo them to yourself. That's pursuit, And look at what we read about here, about our Savior in Isaiah 53. Look at verses two to four. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. So here's what we see. We read about how in order for our Savior to come to us and save us, he had to become a human. And not just any human, but one who is humble and poor and afflicted. Jesus took on humanity in such a way where he would be tempted in every way that we would be tempted. He would experience grief and suffering in every way that we would experience grief and suffering. Hebrews 4.15 says this. I have to read it from here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus takes on humanity and therefore is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He steps into our world, experiences brokenness as we do, and Jesus does this without being prompted by us. He does this without being compelled by us. Jesus steps into humanity, takes on these circumstances because he's pursuing us. In other words, we didn't woo him to earth. He came down to woo us to himself. In love, he initiates the help that we need. This is how much God wants to be reconciled with you. That he initiated. When you're in a conflict with someone, usually you have a period of time where you're both kind of folding your arms and you're mad because you're waiting for the other person to take the step 
towards reconciliation. God doesn't do that with his people. He moves towards us in pursuit. And in order to pursue us and save us, our savior came to be crushed. Right, that's the second way the savior intervenes on our behalf. He is crushed. Look at verses five and six. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jump to verse 10. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. If you remember last week, we read uh, two examples of people in the Old Testament who broke God's law and God quickly struck them dead, crushed them. And if it's true that all of us are guilty of breaking God's law, just like these guys that we studied last week were, the question needs to be asked, why does God crush these guys that we studied last week immediately and not every single one of us the minute we first break God's law? And the answer is that we all deserve what those guys got apart from our salvation in Christ. We will face that if we don't call upon Christ as our savior. And these examples in the Old Testament are just examples of the fact that God is serious about his holiness. And he will justly punish sin equally across the board. Which is why when our savior comes to pursue us, he has to become human like us He has to be tempted in every way that we are tempted and suffer in every way that we suffer, yet remain without sin so he can represent us and stand in our place and be crushed as we deserve to be crushed. If you look at verse six again, it says, we all went away like sheep, stray like sheep, And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Or or, or into verse 11, where it says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. The savior intervenes in our lives by taking on himself God's judgment and bearing our iniquity. And if he has stood in our place and taken upon himself the chastisement and the piercing and the crushing that we deserve, then he will also absorb into his body the spiritual death that we deserve. All right, that's the third way our savior intervenes in our behalf. He's cut off. Look at this in verses eight and nine. It says he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence He had not spoken deceitfully. 700 years before Jesus walked this earth, Isaiah prophesied that the Savior would be wrongly condemned, 
executed and buried in the tomb of a rich man. That's specific. And Jesus was wrongly accused. It was through oppression, an oppressive system, that he was executed on the cross. He died having committed no sin. But it was not just those who wrongly accused him who had willed that Jesus would die that day. That was always the plan. And as Jesus hung on the cross, innocent, yet bearing all of our iniquity, he has this moment on the cross where he looks to his father and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this moment, as Jesus is in our place on the cross, being crushed in our place, bearing our iniquity, he experiences what it's like to be kicked out of God's kingdom. He experiences what it was like when God showed Adam and Eve the door to the Garden of Eden, saying, you're no longer welcome here. His father turned his back on him because he had all of our iniquity. He experiences spiritual death. The Savior becomes one of us, yet is without sin. And he's crushed in our place, and he goes to the grave in our place. Incredible that 700 years before, this was always the plan. And this leads to our fourth way that the Savior intervenes on our behalf, which is through his silence. Look at verse seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. I mean, we need to feel how significant this is. When you're in court and you're accused of a crime and you are innocent and you can prove that you are innocent, there would be no reason to be silent unless you wanted to be convicted. The night that Jesus was arrested, he was praying with his disciples in the garden. Some people came to arrest him and his disciples tried to defend him, drew their swords. Jesus lays down their swords. Says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have all authority. I could stop this, but this is what's gonna happen. And he's arrested silently. He's being beaten and interrogated. People spitting in his face, shouting accusations at him, and he remains silent. When he's hanging on the cross, there's people mocking him. If you're really God, you would save yourself and get off that cross and end this suffering right now. If you were really God, that's what you would do. And Jesus was God, and he did have the authority to get off the cross and end the suffering, but he silently stays on the cross. He was like a sheep that silently was being led to slaughter, to be crushed and to be cut off in our place to cover our sins, but he was also not like a sheep being led to slaughter. Because Jesus wasn't silent because he had an animal brain and was ignorant about what was about to happen. Being used by humanity as a sacrifice. No, he was deliberately silent. 
He deliberately did not defend himself, get this, so that his righteousness could be used to defend us, the people that he came to pursue and save. Let that sink in. Jesus did not defend himself when he had the right to, so that he could be crushed in our place, so he could die in our place, so that his righteousness could be used in our defense. This is the ultimate act of not elevating oneself above others, but of denying self for others. It has nothing to do with how we have obeyed the law or impressed Christ. It has everything to do with what our Savior has done. It's his righteousness that he freely has given because he didn't defend himself with it. It's not our work, it's his work. But what's the end game? I mean, is the end game that the Savior is in the grave, we're declared righteous and we get to go to heaven? No, that's not the end game. Jesus Jesus isn't after our righteousness for righteousness sake. No, Jesus is after the glory of God the Father and restoring humanity to bearing the image of God as we were created. And so the fifth way that the Savior intervenes on our behalf is resurrection. Look at verse 12. God says, therefore I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This has imagery, this verse here, of a king who went into battle, was victorious, and is now sharing the spoils with his people. This prophecy in Isaiah 53 ends with victory. And we know that the victory from scripture is the resurrection of the Savior. Jesus not only takes death upon himself in our place, but he defeats death so that it no longer has power over us. And so that means Jesus is now alive and is our resurrected king who shares the spoils of his victory over sin with us. He is King Jesus. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has saved us from our sin and made us righteous. He has defeated death and he now reigns as king and is the center of the story for every person who calls upon him as Lord and Savior. And so get this, as Christians, we are not individuals who are self-reliant, We are blood-bought children of God who would be lost if it weren't for God's pursuit of us in Christ. See, legalism is a form of secularism. Legalism says that we must continue to prove our salvation. We must continue to follow the law or risk being cut off. That we must continue to earn God's favor and love. And this is a form of secularism because secularism is determined to elevate self, to give ourselves a reason to boast and to be able to say, look at what I accomplished. But the law is not very kind to legalists. We are not so strong and moral that we could impress God on our good behavior and piety alone. 
We are sinners who need Jesus to bear our iniquity and go to the grave on our behalf. But on the other hand, presuming on the grace of God and living a life of unfettered sin while claiming that Jesus has forgiven us of everything, well, that's a form of secularism as well. Because when we presume on the grace of God and use it as an excuse to keep on sinning, we hijack the gospel and take something that was for the glory of God and we make it about ourselves. It's the same as sin as the garden. We are not individuals free of external authority, but by God's grace, we now can live this life in submission to King Jesus who pursued us. And we don't submit to King Jesus with our lives in order to be righteous. No, Jesus already did that work. He already did what needed to be done so that we could be righteous. He gets the credit for that. We submit to King Jesus because we love him, because we know our joy is found in submitting to him, because we wanna give God glory and honor with our lives and not take it for ourselves. We don't elevate self anymore while shedding off external authority. No, we shed off ourselves so we can submit to God and his good and right rule in our lives. And so next week, we're, we're gonna explore more of what it looks like for our hearts to be transformed from someone who's centered on self to someone who is centered on God. But just for this morning, I just want us to, to stop here and, and spend time reflecting on how Jesus pursued us and came to save us. That we were stuck, we were lost, we were spiritually dead, unable to do anything, and he came after us. If Jesus did not initiate his pursuit of us, we would all still be in our sins. And so for now, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and praise him for that and sing to him because he came after us and he saved us. Let's pray. God, where would we be if you had not stepped towards us? Lord, I pray that just in this moment right now as we are reflecting on Isaiah 53 and your scriptures, that Lord, you would allow the weight of the gospel to transform our hearts in this moment now. But would you allow your grace and your mercy upon us right now to, to soften the parts of our heart that are hard? God, would you help us to understand that Apart from you, we are lost. If there's anyone in the room right now who has just been in a place of condemnation, 
They've trusted in you. They've called upon you as their savior, but they constantly feel as if they're always disappointing you. Lord, I pray that, Father, you would remind them right now of your grace, that you saved them, that you were crushed so they wouldn't be crushed. You went into the grave so they would not spend eternity in the grave. That, Lord, they didn't do anything to earn this from you. They didn't do anything to prompt you to do this. This was your doing. It was grace. It was love. It was pursuit. Oh, God, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning who feels far from you, Lord, would you help them to feel pursued by you? Not ignored. And God, I pray that as we just continue to learn more and more every single day about the magnitude of your grace in our lives, would it transform our hearts bit by bit into hearts that want to center everything in our lives on you. Change us, Lord. We praise you for the Savior who came after us and rescued us. In Christ's name, amen.